Hello, and welcome back to the Queer Agenda podcast. I, dude, we are like just rocking and rolling with recording. I'm having so much fun recording um, the episode. So I hope that you're having fun listening. Um, Today, we are talking about one of my favorite topics when it comes to queer history, and that is queer core. I think it's just so interesting how that all played out, um, like around the world too. Um, So I'm just going to like jump right into it because I love talking about this and I think it's so so cool so queer core or sometimes it's also called homocore they kind of go back and forth so queer core or homocore is a cultural movement that started in the mid-1980s as an offshoot of the punk movement um and the original name homocore was a play on words for the word hardcore and according to Liam Warfield um he said that the word homocore first appeared as a wisecrack neologism in the pages of JD's, meant to take the piss out of the hypermasculine hardcore punk scene. And I just love that description because at this point, like when we're in the mid 1980s, punk is already happening. So I would say that I kind of go against my notes and what I have in here. Um, I would go further back and say that queer core and like the punk movement really kind of started happening like i would probably say like 1975 is when we really started hitting the stride um and when we even just look at the root like the origin of the word punk it has its roots in southern prison slang and it has a like a queer connotation i think punk essentially meant like the like the passive partner in sex so like a bottom was a punk um, so even the fact that it was called the punk movement and it was this hyper-masculine type of movement, but it was called punk, um, is kind of hilarious that all, it was all these like masculine guys and they didn't, they didn't know the, um, origins of the word. So I think that that's super funny. So most of the punk scene before queer core was dominated by straight white men. And so queer core sought to actively oppose that dominant authority and reject the idea that queer people should be respectable and otherwise indistinguishable from straight people. Because up until really, I would say Stonewall, and then even like a little bit after, we had a lot of respectability politics in place. So it was like, we only want a specific type of gay person to represent the community. And if you're a fall outside of that, then we don't want to hear from you because you give us a bad rap pretty much. Um, Queercore directly went against that. Um, so a lot of my research fo- is very like Americanized. Um, I really only focus on like this part of the world. I try not to, but especially when it comes to things like this, where their ground zero is like on the East Coast. Um, I, I would love to learn more about the queer core overseas as well. So, because I know that in England, queer, not queer core specifically, but punk was a huge thing, especially like during this time as well. And I would love to learn more about that. So maybe that will be an upcoming episode is Britain's um, punk scene. But so when we talk about um, like ground zero for the punk movement, we, I, at least I do, I think of New York City. Um, obviously there were other places that had great venues um, and great people who were playing there, but New York was just such a, a vital place, I think. So there were two really, there were only really two venues for punk rock in New York City. So it was CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. 
So CBGB's was opened in 1973 by Hilly Crystal in Manhattan's East, East Village. And the bar was originally supposed to host country, bluegrass, and blues bands. So CBGB's, country, bluegrass, blues. Um, but they quickly became a venue for punk and new wave bands to play. Um, so before Hilly Crystal bought CBGB's, it was um, a biker bar. And so they kind of had the support of the bikers that worked there or not worked there, but like lived in that area. Um, and they kind of worked together, which I think is kind of great. And so basically Hilly had kind of said like, Hey, I'm trying to have music here. Um, like if we're cool, I need you to stop coming. And they were like, okay. Like, I, I'm sure that there was some more technicality to that, but in the movie documentary that I saw, that's kind of how it happened. But again, that tends to dramatize. Oh, by the way, if you want to learn more about CBGBs, um, there's a great movie with Alan Rickman in it. Um, and he plays Hilly Crystal. And it just it's it's just crazy how everything played out. And I'll get more into that. But so at CBGBs, the bands that played were like these kids who just showed up and were like, hey, my name is Joey Ramone. Can I play you some music? So then the Ramones played there, television played there, Patti Smith, Blondie, Talking Heads, like all of these crazy, like good new wave bands got their start at CBGB's because he let them play, um, which is super cool. So CBGB's later became known as CBGB Umfugs. So that stood for Country, Bluegrass, Blues, and Other Music for Uplifting Gormandizers. Um, so really just like a digestible name for everybody. But yeah, CBGB's was like an insane place to be at this time. Like Iggy Pop played there, Patti Smith, um, Blondie, the Ramones played there. Like all of these awesome, awesome bands played there, um, and got their start there. And if you watch some of the acceptance speeches from like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of those new wave bands, they specifically either they bring Hilly Crystal on stage or they thank him in his speeches, um, which is super fucking rad. So the other venue that played punk rock was Max's Kansas City. And that was opened by Mickey Rustin in December of 1965. And it quickly became a popular hangout for Andy Warhol and his entourage. So the Velvet Underground played there regularly. And it, they played there on one of their last shows that they played with Lou Reed before he quit the band. So again, we see people like Iggy Pop playing there, Jane County, Alice Cooper, and the New York Dolls. Um... Max's Kansas City closed down, I believe, before CBGB's, or maybe it was the early 80s that Max's closed down. But Max's was very short-lived because once Andy Warhol and that factory sort of disco pop scene died down and um, punk became a thing that people really didn't want to go anymore. Um, so it closed down and CBGB's became like the new place to go. So as the movement was happening, Queercore embraced the negative queer stereotypes in a quote, Spectacle of film, or excuse me, spectacle of experimental film, alternative magazines, and of course, music. Um, so that quote comes from the book Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution and Oral History um, by Liam Warfield, Walter Crasshole, and Yoni Lizer. I think it's a like transcript of like the documentary Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution, but I'm not exactly sure. But either way, it's a great book. Um, so when they say music, experimental music, I always think of bands like Le Tigre, Nervous Gender, Pansy Division, Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, The Clash. And like with films, I think of John Waters films like um, Female Troubles and Pink Flamingos with Divine, which 
what a fucking actor, dude. Like she was incredible. Um, and then obviously Bruce, LaBru- Bruce, LaBruce, sorry, who is still alive and well, both of these people, uh, John Waters and Bruce, the Bruce are both still around, um, and making art and just doing the damn thing. Um, and then there were a lot of zines that came out of that. Um, zines were such an integral part of the queer movement or not the queer movement. They were a part of the queer movement, but they were a huge part of the punk movement. And that's really how they got their start. Um, so like, uh, JD's was a Toronto queer zine. Um, so that's like the only out, out of the country one that I know. Um, I really should know more, but there's also out punk that was in San Francisco and then thing, which was in Chicago. Um, so there was a lot going on and queer core was super, super radical at a time when like politically things were kind of going to shit. Um, people were dying of AIDS every day in 1990 alone, 92 people died a day of AIDS. I think I talked about that in my origins of the word queer podcast episode. That's the first episode. So if you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. Um, but yeah, so 1990 alone, 92 people were dying a day or like four people an hour every day for a year which is just insane. Um, And then there was also, we were living in the time of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. So like just a shitty time to be alive uh, if you were a queer person. But there was so much that was going on. um, And it's really just like rad to think of like, there were so many moving parts that came about and had to happen for this movement to happen at the point where it did. And it's honestly a miracle that happened when it did. Because if you watch the CBGB's um like film it's not a documentary but it's like a like a docu movie i don't know what that's called um but yeah it like it was just genuinely like a crazy time like it was a disgusting bar it had like disgusting bathrooms like there were a bunch of like 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 sleazy people there who probably shouldn't have been there like it was just the fact that this all happened at the time that it did and it ended out it it ended up like pretty good like it's kind of insane um i think heli crystal was like on the brink of bankruptcy when he bought cbgb's and then all these fucking amazing bands just kind of like fell into his lap which is insane so at the beginning of the 1990s riot girl and queer core overlapped so that's where like a lot of people will think that queer core and riot girl are the same thing and they're not um, I believe that Queer Core came first and then Riot Girl broke through and they overlapped in a lot of ways. So Larry Livermore, who co-founded Lookout Records uh, in California, and that uh, record label is responsible for bands like the Pansy Division and Green Day. Um, he remembered Riot Girl expressed women's frustrations with the punk movement by saying, I'm not going to hold your leather jacket at the back of the pit anymore. I'm going to be in the pit and I'm going to make a safe space for people my size and people of all sizes. I think Riot Girl and Queer Core kind of arose out of the same energy, even if they didn't always understand each other, which is just such a cool, like, again, there's so many moving parts had to happen for this to all happen. There's a great book about Riot Girl that is in my to be read list. My mom just bought it for me for my birthday. Um, called Girls to the Front by Sarah Marcus. I highly recommend that. Um, It's been on my to-be-read list forever, but I'm sure it's amazing because Sarah Marcus, like, fucking rocks. Um, But yeah, there was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot going on. You're going to hear me say that like five million times. Um, But at the same time that this was all happening, like, so Larry Livermore was in California. CBGBs in Max's Kansas City were in New York City. And then in Chicago, there was their own sort of 
queer core movement happening. I just don't know very much about it, um, truthfully. But one of my favorite things to come out of the queer core movement in Chicago is SPEW. I don't remember exactly what SPEW stands for, but it was a homocore convention in Chicago that started in 1992. So they, like all these queer core artists from around the country and around the world, really, so people who made zines, people who were in bands, like people who were making movies and films and like just art in general would come to Chicago for this convention. Um, and Joan Jet Black um, was a huge queer core figure in Chicago. And she really helped a lot of SPEW and the Chicago homo core movement. So Joan Jet Black was a drag queen and she, I, I'm pretty sure she's still around and kicking. Um, but she ran for the office of mayor of Chicago in 1991 as a drag queen, which I mean, just like, that's so cool. Like 1991, that's crazy. Um, and then she ran for presidency in 1992, presidency of the United States, um, under the slogan lick Bush in 92. And that's a real, like, you can go online and find buttons and, like, matchbooks that said, like, Lick Bush in 92. And it had Joan Jet Black on it. It's just, like, I love it so much. It's, I like, this whole movement is so interesting to me. It's just, like, the I could go on and on about it. I'll hold on. Let me finish with my thought before I run off. But she ran for president again. So she now she's run for mayor of Chicago president of the United States twice. So once in 1992 and once in 1996. So when she ran in 1996, she ran with the slogan lick slick Willie in 96. And that was a um, like homage to Bill Clinton, um, which I just think is so funny. But so in each of these campaigns, she ran on the queer nation party ticket. So queer nation, we talked again about them in our origins of the word queer um, podcast episode. They were the first, um, organization to positively adopt the word queer, um, at least that we know of. And they were an offshoot of ACT UP in the early 80, or early 90s, excuse me. Um, and apparently they had like their own political party, which I didn't know. So one of my favorite quotes to come out of this book, um, Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution, um, is by Jody Bleal. So Jody Bleal was a guitarist and a singer for the revolutionary dykecore band Team Dresh. And they still make music sometimes, I know. And they tour sometimes, but again, they're like a little bit older, so they don't go on tour as much as they might have um, earlier. But she has this great quote, and she says, Queercore was a movement, a social movement, a socio-political movement, really. It brought a lot of cultural visibility to the gays, to the queers, to the freaks. And that definitely helps the people working on the political angles, political representation, civil rights issues, people that are doing the technical work to move those things forward. They need the freaks on the edges doing the cultural work. That was us, the freaks on the edge. Without, without that cultural visibility, without these visions of ourselves and sounds of ourselves, we don't even know that we exist, much less that we deserve rights and political representation. I mean, no one starts by saying, I wish there were a gay senator. They're just like, I want to make out with a girl. Are there other girls that do that? What will I be like when I'm 40? What will I be like when I'm 70? Is there anyone else out there? What do people do? What can I do? Possibilities, you know? You want to see the possibilities. This is my favorite thing that she says because I think it is so relevant to today. She says, you have to know you have a reason to live before you can care whether you can get married. Like, oh my, like just what 
a fucking quote, dude. Like, just, you have to know you have a reason to live before you can care whether you can get married. Wow. Like, just amazing. And I think the thing that also interests me about this whole movement is that I grew up listening to these bands, not necessarily like Team Dresh, but I grew up like listening to the Ramones and Patti Smith and the Beastie Boys was not queer core, but they were from New York. So I'm blending them in there. Um, And so I grew up listening to these bands. And so in my head, I just see them as like somebody's cool dad, like, or like somebody's cool parent. And like looking back at pictures of them and seeing them young, I'm like, holy shit. Like this is like, they were kids, like just truly like 19 year old kids, like trying to make it. And then they like overnight became the band, like the integral bands of such a new and important movement. And I just think that's so cool. It like everything about it is so cool. Um, so shout out to my dad for making me listen to that music in the car. I I grew up with like a weird music palette. So like my mom is from rural Illinois. My dad is from Long Island. And um, my mom used to come to the kindergarten pickup line. I tell this story all the time. And she's like, I don't remember that. I'm like, okay. Um, But she used to come to the kindergarten pickup line to pick me up. And I remember like I would hear the car before I would see the car. And she would roll up and it would be like bass boosting. And then you would open the door and it would be like, I like it when you call me big pop. But like, it was so funny. Like, so my mom listened, like she played a lot of like Tupac and Biggie when we were growing up and Suge Knight and all that. Um, but she also played like Bare Naked Ladies and uh, what else? Hootie and the Blowfish, like Nirvana. So there was a, a Green Day. Oh my gosh. Bas- Basket Case is my mom's favorite Green Day song. And every time I hear it, I think about her. Same thing with Black Hole Sun. Every time I hear Black Hole Sun, she used to play that in the car as well. Um, so that's the kind of music that my mom brought to the table. My dad, because he, he's from New York, he was growing up at this time when all these bands were kind of coming of age and, um, really like hitting their stride. So there was a lot of like the Ramones and there was a good like mix of the Beastie Boys and the Velvet Underground and Patti Smith and like just a, I'm trying to think of who else my dad used to play for us. Oh, a lot of Pink Floyd, a lot of, um, oh, fuck, what am I thinking of? I have a whole playlist, like, full of music that they used to play. So it's it's a weird, interesting mix that I grew up with, and I think that that really influences me as a person today. And so getting to go back and kind of, like, learn about this history is really, really cool because it's something that's so personal, and I think music tells a lot about who we are as people. I'm a DJ at my college radio, so I could just, like, drone on and on about music. But I think the thing about queercore that's so interesting, too, is we had these musical movements kind of come and go. So we had like disco that died out and punk was around for a little bit. And then it got kind of got pushed out by like that early noughties, like uh, pop princess movement. Like every time I think of like the pop princesses of the early 2000s, I think like I think the things that everybody thinks about, like Britney and Christina Aguilera and like all these Beyonce, obviously, like all of these amazing artists. And then we kind of in the 2010s, there was this weird shift where it was like, if you were a teenager on the internet in 2014, it was like the Arctic monkeys and like grunge and like, I'm not like other girls. I listen to Green Day and like, you don't get it. 
that's very much what it was like shopping at Hot Topic, like going to the mall with $20 in your pocket in a dream. Like, so, like I still sometimes think about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just like had no worries in the world. It was like, which band t-shirt am I going to buy? The Red Hot Chili Peppers or am I going to buy a Nirvana shirt? Um, that was like, oh, so good. But I mean, in that time there was Tumblr. I mean, Tumblr's still around, but like peak Tumblr, like grunge Tumblr and like all of those things. Like so interesting. It's so interesting how movements come about. But I think the thing that's so interesting about queer core is that it has such a staying power. The same thing with punk. We still, people are still today producing queer music and punk music. Um, one of the, I have a whole playlist on my Spotify that is linked in the link tree of like my favorite queer core artists. But I think of bands like uh, Boyish is a great queer core band. Um, ooh, who else? Germs are great. The Degenerates. Um, Wet Leg is great. Ooh, Dog Park Dissidents is great too. They have a song called Queers and Fuck You, and that's a great song. Um, Destroy Boys are great. Daisy and the Scouts. I think Daisy and the Scouts are, they kind of fall more under Riot Girl than they do queer core, but I could be wrong. But you obviously, you get these, like, just these movements and these points in time where it can't be replicated. And I think that queer core is one of those everlasting things. Like, the fact that it's been, what, 50 years? Yeah. 1970? Yeah. It's been, like, queer core has this staying power. And I think that's what makes it so important. Um, and in the afterword of this book queer core, how to punk a revolution, take a shot every time I've said that. Um, but in the afterword, Walter Crasshole says, while the roots covered in this book begin in 1969, queer core's expiration date has yet to be declared. There are still so many reasons to fight. The original pioneers are still here making music, film, art, literature, politics, whatever. The adage in punk is to rip it up and start again. And if you want to do that, go ahead, rip it, shred it, burn it, whatever. But don't forget it. Be whatever it takes to shake some shit up in an all too straight world. It still needs it. I think that is so powerful, especially because of everything that's going on in the world politically. Like, so I'm filming this, or I'm recording this on March 3rd. So just today, the Tennessee drag bill just got signed by the governor. So that basically made like drag illegal and gender affirming healthcare for children illegal. So it, it feels like we're kind of regressing in a way, like the pendulum swings each way, depending on what's up. But I think that we're definitely regressing. And so it's the fact that drag is illegal again, and it was illegal 50 years ago when Stonewall happened, I think some, some shit's going to happen. And I think queer core is definitely going to become an important player once again, because it's this thing that can kind of be whatever. And it's like Jody Bleal said, it's the freaks on the outside doing the cultural work. And I think that's kind of where we are now. I think that we've moved past the assimilation almost of like same sex marriage and things like that. Like, obviously that was very, very important, but they talk a lot about it. They, they articulate it way better in this book. Of uh, It was kind of, it was important, but it was also kind of a similist of like, um, look at how normal we can be. I can have a family and I can do this just like you. And I'm like, kind of, again, like the respectability politics. And I think now we're definitely kind of swinging the other way of like, not queer as in happy, but queer as in fuck you or something like that. 
I think that's where we're going, or at least that's where I hope we're going because we need it. So that was my episode on Queercore. I thought this was going to be a lot longer, but I just got so excited. And so I talk really fast when I get excited about things. So I hope that you enjoyed it. If you're interested in learning more about Queercore, um, there are some great documentaries out there um, where they interview actual people who are part of it. Um, there are some people who are no longer with us, like Divine, who was in a lot of John Waters films, has since passed. Um, I believe she passed in the early 90s from a heart condition or heart failure or something like that. Um, but John Waters is still alive. Bruce LaBruce is still alive. Sarah Marcus. Um, who am I thinking of? Hold on. I'm thinking of somebody specifically. I can't think of. Andy Warhol is obviously gone. Kathleen Hanna uh, from Bikini Kill, still around and kicking. I actually think Kathleen Hanna married one of the Beastie Boys. I think she married Ad Rock, which is a hilarious crossover because she's just like this badass, like riot girl sort of person. And then like it's Ad Rock, um, which is I just love Ad Rock. I love the Beastie Boys. So shout out to my dad for that. Um, but yeah, I hope that you learned a lot and you look more into queer core as a movement and as, cause I think it's going to happen again. So it's going to become important. Um, but yeah, queer core, how to punk a revolution, uh, girls to the front by Sarah, Sarah Marcus is great. Um, Bruce LaBruce is actually on Instagram, so you can follow him. Um, and he posts a lot of really interesting, great content. So Yeah. Thank you for listening, and you can tune in next week to whatever our topic is going to be. I don't know what it's going to be, um, but we'll find out. So thank you for listening. <laughs>